groans inwardly, groans outwardly, groans because the topic of predestination is being discussed. Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith, and this is Brandon, and we are pastors here in Santa Cruz, California at Gospel Community Church. Welcome, like, subscribe, comments, and we are talking about one of the funnest doctrines today. The funnest of doctrines. The funnest doctrines. Groans in relief for your terrible jokes. Yes. But no, actually, I actually, I, I really did like, I love the cheesy jokes. Oh yeah, I that's do. great. We're, we're about that, so we have to keep yes. going. Yes. So. Yep. There's a, there's a real shift in thinking that happens when you become a dad. Yeah. When we were at Shepherd's Conference earlier this year, they had a dad joke book in the, uh, in the books. Oh, I missed shop. that. Yeah, I, I was this close to buying it. I almost oh, got wow. it, but I didn't. It would have been good. That sounds great. Yeah. yeah. You like a dad Christian jokes book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nice, good, clean humor. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it makes your kids uncomfortable when they're older. Yeah, yeah that kind of thing. <laughs> so we're in the book of Romans, this um, magnum opus. The book of Romans. Of the Apostle Christ. Apostle Christ. <laughs> <laughs> the Apostle Paul. Wow. The Apostle Christ. I don't know what the, to say. The, the Gospel of Romans. Yeah. So much heresy. Yeah. Um, so we saw the outline last week. We saw the first four chapters about the gospel as the righteousness of God by faith. Then we saw chapters five through eight. We're going to finish that section today. The gospel as the power of God for salvation. And then for chapters nine to 11, the gospel and Israel. Mm-hmm. And the end of the book is the gospel and the transformation of life. Awesome. So it's going to be good. It's going to be fun. And we're all going from that theme verse, right? The theme verse in uh, Romans 1, 16 to 17, where we saw the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. We see the, the power of faith, that faith is what um, is the instrument of righteousness, how we take hold of that righteousness. And then we also saw the connection to the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to see some of those themes again today. Oh, yeah. So so, many, so much good stuff. So, so much, much good stuff. So much. Well, chapter 8. Yep. Let's do it. So chapter 8 continues what was covered in chapter 7. So we saw this, you know, this focus on faith as what justifies. It's not works. But then we also saw these, these two realities, right? One is that we've been made new in Christ. We have a new identity. We, there's a new reality. And there's also the old reality of the flesh. Mm-hmm. So even though we've been transferred from the realm of death into life, from law to grace, there's still this struggle that's happening. Right. And so Paul's going to address that a little bit more here that those two realities are at work. So he continues this by saying, verse verse 1 of chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. So again, condemnation says we're not under the wrath of God. Yep. And we're justified, so we're not condemned. We're at peace with God. It's very similar to Romans 5, 1. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the, but there's these two realities, right? So verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Mm. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Oh. So he's talking about these two realities, right? There's a law of sin and death. That's the Mosaic covenant. Right. And then there's the law of the spirit of life. That's the new covenant that we're under. Mm-hmm. So he says, you're not under that old reality. You're under a new reality. Mm-hmm. So understanding those words and how he's using the law is super important. Mm. But he condemns sin in the flesh by fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law in Jesus, mm-hmm. yeah. right? So that's what verse 4 is about. So verse 6 says, to set the mind on the flesh is death, 
but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Hmm. So if we are in this state of we've been called out of the old covenant, out of the, the way of law into grace, again, he's not saying that we don't do good things. Yeah. He's saying we're not in the old covenant. Right. We're not justified by our actions. And that's what the old covenant was designed to show us, right. that we never could be. So he's saying that we have to set our mind on the spirit. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So he's saying, don't go into the old way of life. Don't get um, taken down by the flesh and live a a fleshly kind of existence, but instead live as you've been called. Mm. Live as who you are. And then again, he reiterates that in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So this is that new accomplished reality. Mm. And so again, he's going to encourage us to live in light of that reality, that we are heirs with Christ is the next section, right? That we we have an inheritance from Christ, and so we can call out to God, Abba, Father. We can claim God. Abba is just a a word in Aramaic for Father, for you know, it's a basic word. It's be one of the first words you would say as a kid, mm-hmm. but it, but it speaks to a connection and affection. So we can call it Abba Father. Yeah, it's it's incredible to think through these these higher thoughts with, you know, the purpose of life. How do we actually attain to righteousness in God? How do, how do we even sanctify our lives? And how do we even get to that point? It's in one level, it's like mind boggling to think through, but another, and it's so useful to have. Um, this part of Romans that teaches how to actually please God in this life, you know, yeah. and how to be saved. I guess it's just at all. Yeah, like, that's very yeah. true. Yeah. Very true. So, verse sixteen: the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs with God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we also may be glorified with Him. Yeah. So He's going to transition to speaking about the future reality that's breaking into the world one day. Mm-hmm. And so suffering is a good lens for that. The suffering we experience now is is you know showing us, is revealing to us the glory that eventually will come. And so right. in verse 18, he says, these sufferings are not worth comparing to that glory. So we suffer now, we endure these things now, it's part of normal life, but the glory to be revealed is so much greater. Right. So he begins to look forward to that reality, and he... he states how the, the world itself is in groaning in the pains of childbirth, awaiting for that day when it will be glorified. Mm-hmm. So verse 19, this may be a little bit strange for some people, but it says the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So creation is in a state of curse, mm-hmm. and it's waiting. He's personifying nature here, okay? Right. So it's, don't take it too literally. <laughs> but he's just saying that the, the nature nature around us is waiting for us as the first fruits of the redemption, of re- resurrection, to be made new to be resurrected, and after that happens, after the sons of God are revealed and glorified, the entire creation is going to be glorified. Hmm. That's, that's part of the plan that God has for us. So the creation needs that recreation to happen, just like we need resurrection. Right. Verse 20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Hmm. So that same glory, in a sense, that we have when we are glorified, the creation is going to have. So we see the idea of curse and of a need for that new creation. So there's a sort of groaning that's happening. And you also pointed out how there's a groaning inwardly, that the spirit 
intercedes for us mm-hmm. in our in our inner person. Right. So we have the Spirit working inside of us, to, um, it, you know, in this time of curse to intercede with us before God. Yeah. So all these things are happening in this chapter. It's a very, very interesting chapter. And we, we got to talk about verses 28 to 30 real quick, just because these are pretty, pretty famous, pretty big verses. Mm-hmm. Verse 28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, mm-hmm. for those who are called according to his purpose. Mm. So it's a pretty straightforward statement here of everything is working together for the good of those who God loves. Right. So God is that in control of all of circumstances that it all will work for good. Right. Nothing is going to just be tossed away or a side note. Everything will come together for the good of God's people. Right. It's, a, it's a massive statement. Yeah. And you have to have control over every detail of history mm-hmm. to be able to make that kind of a statement. Right. Yeah. And then in verse 29, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son mm-hmm. in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So he foreknows, that means he knows someone beforehand. So the idea here is that God knows you and chooses you before you exist. Yeah. He knows you intimately. In contrast, that's not foreknow the actions that we do, but actually the person that we are. Yes. So the idea of knowledge. I always think of Spanish, how there's saber and conocer, and there's like to know facts, and then there's like conocer, like I know you. Okay. Like, oh, yeah, I know Keith. Not just I know about him, but I know him. Right. And then in Hebrew, we see that in an even more drastic way because think of like uh, Genesis 4, 1. Mm-hmm. Adam knew his wife, Eve, and right. she conceived and bore a son. Right. I'm like, well, what facts did he know that led to that happening? Well, it was that's not the kind of knowledge. It's, it's an intimate knowledge, obviously. Right. Right. If you don't know how that works. Um, I think you have special ministry available to explain that to people. Yeah, I do. Birds and the bees yeah, uh, exactly. with Keith. Send me an email. <laughs> Call me. Come Sunday morning, we can chat. Um, so anyway, so that this is an intimate knowledge where God chooses. He predestines. So he destines beforehand, and this isn't just some sort of vague like he plans certain things about your life. It's he predestines you to be conformed to the image of his son. Mm-hmm. So he, he predestines the entire journey of faith to the very end that you would be fully glorified. Yeah. So the way these are massive is, statements is by getting predestined by God, loved by yes. God. Yes. Yeah. And we're going to see more of that in Romans 9. Yeah. So if you're interested in that topic, we'll, we'll dig into it a little bit more. But, and then he says, verse 30, because you could say, well, you know, what does predestined really mean? What does that really encompass? We could do, do the whole philosopher thing. Like, yeah. who even knows? Yeah. Well, verse 30 helps us, right? <laughs> The dumb thing. Who knows? <laughs> Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. So that's speaking to the initial, the, the calling to salvation, right? Mm-hmm. So God bringing someone to salvation. Those whom he called, he also justified. Again, that's being made righteous. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Yeah. That's final salvation. That's being made sinless and complete and perfect. Yeah. And, re- and resurrected. So he's looking at people, he's looking at people who are not yet glorified, and he's saying, God already glorified you. Mm-hmm. That's what predestination means. Yeah. And, and again, he's speaking, uh, the term would be proleptically. Mm-hmm. He's speaking about something future as if it's already accomplished mm-hmm. because it's so certain now. Yeah. I love the consistency of that, of that truth revealed here, you know, halfway through eight. You see that same consistency, like he's been talking about Abraham in the previous chapter, right? Yeah. 
like how was Abraham even like a part of God's story in the first place? He was called, right? Yeah. He was chosen by God. Same with every other person who believes in God. They've been called. They've been chosen by God. Yes. So it's yeah. consistent. It's not inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. Yeah. Or our lives, but yeah, I, I agree. And so we see how how loving God is, but also how powerful God's love is. Mm. And we, I think, sometimes miss this: that God's love is not just a longing for us. It's not just a wishful thinking. Right. Like, oh, man, I really wish they'd come back to me. No, it's a powerful, it's an effective love. Right. It's able to bring us home. Not just to salvation, but all the way to final glorification. Hmm. And so we see that in the end of the chapter. We see that reminder of God's the strength of God's love. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Hmm. So the clear answer is no one. Right? If we have the most powerful being in the universe on our side, nothing can stop us. Right. And he, he argues even further, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's saying if God gave us the most precious thing, which is the blood of Christ, the life of Christ, mm-hmm. well, then how can he not give us all the other things he promised as well? I mean, right. once you've given the most precious thing in your possession, right. what does it matter all the, the rest of it? It's just right. gravy. It's just wrapping paper on the, <laughs> the present, right? So, of course, God's going to give us everything. So no one can condemn God's elect mm because of what has been given for them. Mm. And then we can skip ahead here verse 35, who shall or yeah, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the implied answer is no, nothing can separate us from God's love. Yeah. In Christ Jesus. And so there's this amazing end of the passage we won't read. It's very familiar, but God is essentially saying nothing Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Comprehensive statement, right? One of the most powerful statements in all of Scripture. And so this is is the final word when it comes to how you are justified and saved. It's all Christ. It's all God's, God's strength. Yep. Amen. So after a really triumphant ending to that passage, what's strange is in chapter 9, there's a pretty stark transition. Mm Mm-hmm. So he starts off by talking about how sad he is. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So That's verse one, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? <laughs> Why? Would, yeah. I mean, you're speaking about the glories of the gospel. Why are you upset? Well, he says essentially that it's because of my people, my kinsmen, the Jews. They're not receiving this gospel. Right. Now this has been evident throughout the entire book of Acts. Right, obviously through the Gospels too, but in Paul's ministry, he's experienced it firsthand that the Jews are not accepting the Gospel of Jesus. Mm. So w- what's he to do with this? The fact that his own people won't receive it. He would always go first to the synagogues, right. as we saw, to give it to the Jews, and when they rejected it, he'd go to the Gentiles. Right. And at the end of the book, he's saying, I'm going to the Gentiles now. Yeah, I'm, I'm done with the Jews. So how, how do you deal with this? Verse 3, he says... For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Mm. He says, I wish I was condemned so they could be brought in. Yeah, again, the, the, the power of salvation belongs to God alone in Christ alone. Like, yeah. Even Paul, if he wanted to, he couldn't save his brothers. Yeah, so, exactly. So yeah. he's he's got anguish about this. Mm. Has, has God abandoned his people, the Jews, in order to bring in the Gentiles? Mm. Why is it that Israel is responding to the gospel? These are big questions yeah. that Paul wants to address in chapters 9 to 11. Right. 
So this is the gospel in Israel section, mm -hmm. very important. And so this whole section, the rest of what we're gonna cover in this video, focuses on God's promise to Israel. Right. So the basic answer we're gonna get is that no, God hasn't forsaken his people, right. yeah. but there has been a partial or temporary uh, rejection of the Jews, they, they've turned away from God, in order for God to bring in the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. And that finally, in the end, there will be an ingathering of Jews yeah, or a, a massive revival of yeah. Jewish people, that all Israel will be saved in the end. So this is a little complicated, and it really depends upon how you view you know, what Israel is. Yeah, dispensational, covenant. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So look at verse 6. This is kind of what, part of where the problem is here. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And then he says in verse 8, this means it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So one of the big challenges here is, okay, what's he saying there? Is he saying that it, it, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew? Is he saying that Israel is not a physical nation? Well, what's interesting here, he seems to be somewhat saying that, if we're honest, but the rest of the passage, he's going to contrast Gentile Jew, Gentile Jew. Mm -hmm. Hey, you Gentiles, don't be proud against the Jews. So if he doesn't mean an ethnic people by that, then it's it's doesn't make any sense, mm -hmm. right? Or he'll say the, the Jews reject the word of God. Well, he's not speaking about spiritual Jews because then they, according to this, wouldn't reject God's word. Right. So it's very confusing. So I would think, so there's kind of two ways that he's speaking about Israel. Mm -hmm. He's speaking about, he's going to speak first about the election and about how God works an individual election of people. And then he's going to show a little bit of how ethnic Israel will be saved. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we have to just be careful. With it. I think some people take this, these verses and they use it as a way to essentially just scrub everything after this. Right. Well, it just all refers to, like, I see it all through that one verse. Yeah. But there's clearly an ethnic Israel. Mm -hmm. thing happening here. And I think God does have a love for ethnic Israel and yeah. a plan for that actual land. Yeah, for sure. So um, just to be clear, clear on that. Yeah, good. That's good. So, so Paul's going to show that your inclusion into God's people first isn't based on your ethnicity or your effort. Mm -hmm. This is very important. It's not based on how you were born or on the works that you do. Right. And this is how it's always been, actually, mm -hmm. that not all Israel is Israel. Not all, everyone who comes from Abraham is part of the promised people. Mm -hmm. Oh, look, there's Ishmael. God didn't choose Ishmael. He chose Isaac. Right. So God chooses one, not the other. Maybe someone would say, well, that's because Ishmael was born of Hagar. Okay, well, let's take twins, yeah. Jacob and Esau. Right. God rejects one and chooses the other. Right. So this is super important. So what he's pointing out here is <clears throat> that this gets into the mystery of divine election. How? Why does God save one over other? Mm -hmm. uh, verse 10 not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So there's a lot of like clauses here, phrases that like kind of build on each other. So, But what we can clearly see is that this is speaking to Salvation, right? The entire context of Romans is about salvation. It's about who is the people of God, yeah. those who are saved. Um, it's talking about individuals, clearly. Yeah. Um, I, we know those individuals also will stand later for whole nations, but he's speaking about specifically how does God choose one person over another. Right. 
And he's saying that is not because of the works of one person. Right, exactly. So it's about individuals, and it's not, again, it's not about works. Mm-hmm. Because they're in the in utero. They're in the yeah. womb. So they've done they, nothing. They've done nothing. Yeah. And yet God picks one and, and rejects the other. Yeah. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. The idea of hated there is not loved. Yeah. It's not necessarily our idea of like, I loathe that person. Yeah, or I'm maliciously, yeah. It's just saying, I'm, I'm loving this person, not loving that person. Yeah. Like how you know Leah was the hated wife. I don't think he hated her because she had lots of kids, but he didn't love her like he loved Rachel. Right. So God is God is choosing someone, not because of what they had done, either good or bad, but verse eleven, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, hmm. not because of works, but because of Him who calls. So God is explicitly saying, "I'm doing this to show how my choice, mm-hmm. my election of one person." works right it's entirely on the basis of my free grace mm-hmm. it's it's there's no control that humans have over it right and we've like this is the same message we keep hearing again yes again. Yeah. it's like paul really wants us to get that you don't control your salvation <laughs> yeah but we still miss it we still yeah. forget it so the natural question would be is god unjust to do that right paul asking questions again yeah so verse 14 what shall we say then is there injustice on god's part by no means. Again, if you're not asking this question, you haven't understood the previous verses correctly. Yeah. That seems unjust. Yeah. For God for to sure. just choose someone to save and to not choose someone else. Yeah. But the conclusion, he goes into Pharaoh and Moses, and he shows that God raises up Pharaoh in order to show his justice, mm-hmm. in order to bring judgment to him. Yeah. And so he concludes, verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So the natural natural implication of all this is that God has freedom to choose who will come to faith in him. So again, the question, verse 19, why then does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Mm-hmm. So why would God fault anyone if he's totally in control? Right. And the response given is sort of surprising because we'd expect here Paul, who always has a clear, logical answer for us, instead he rebukes that question. Right. Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Right. Has the potter no right over the clay? So what he's saying here is God is in a different category. This is not just a human thing. So God, his control over everything means that we don't get to have direct answers to all of this. How does all of this work out? Yeah. Well, there's a limit to what the scripture says. What we can know is that we are chosen by God to salvation that without his choice of us, we would never come to him, mm-hmm. and that we are also responsible for our own decisions. Right. These two things are abundantly clear in Scripture. Right. So, and we take another. Well, we've done other videos on election. Yeah. So you can you can consult those videos for more in depth um, treatment of this. But we have to say we can only speak to where Scripture speaks, and right. we have to stop when we get past that because we can't definitively say one way or the other how that all works. But the point here is that God is fully in control. Yeah. And he uses two Old Testament quotes at the end of this chapter. Well, more than two, but the, the, two, the two following right, point out that there has always been this promise of bringing in the Gentiles right. and that there always was going to be a rejection by the Jews. Mm-hmm. So he, he wants to clarify that. And then he points out in verses 30 and 31 that the Jews didn't get righteousness even though they were trying to follow the law, but the Gentiles who didn't try to follow the law, they got righteousness. Right. And so verse 32 is a, is a good place to kind of conclude here. It says, why? Because they did not pursue it 
by faith. So the Jews didn't pursue righteousness by faith, but as if it were based on works. Right. So they missed the entire point, which is that they couldn't do the law. Yeah. And they were desperate and sinful and broken, and they needed a, a righteous and holy God to give righteousness to them by faith. Yeah. So, man, so we're come, coming back full circle again to that same mm-hmm. justification by faith. We'll, we'll just really briefly touch on chapter 10, and then we'll get into 11 with the time we have left. Verse 10, actually, I'll just look at, let's look at one verse here, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Hmm. Another great verse that sums it up. The end of the law in what sense? That we should never obey any laws? No. That we shouldn't listen to the Old Testament? No. But the end of the law in terms of trying to justify yourself. Yeah. So when you believe, you are justified, and that's the end. That's the final word. Yeah. Let's look a little bit at chapter 11. Ah, yes. So God, so Paul again wants to reaffirm here that God has not rejected Israel. Right. He has not rejected Israel. And so look at uh, verse 11. So he says, um, speaking of the Jews, so I asked that they stumble in order that they might fall by no means. Rather, through their trespass, the, the Jews' trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, mm. <clears throat> excuse me, so as to make Israel jealous. So he's saying they've stumbled, they've rejected God, but does that mean that they're completely done? No, it's to provoke them to jealousy, right? So first of all, it's to bring the Gentiles in, mm-hmm. and then Paul's saying, I want to provoke the Jews to je- jealousy because now the Gentiles are part of God's people. Right. So it says, verse 12, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Mm. So when the Gentiles were rejected, when they crucified Jesus, right, rejected his ministry, when the temple was destroyed, all these things that were massive in that uh, few decades, that allowed the, the word to go out to the Gentiles. Right. When in their synagogues, they were rejecting Paul. It allowed the word to go to the Gentiles. <laughs> so this was used in God's perfect plan right. for, his, for his good purpose, right? Romans right. 8.28. So everything is working to, to bring the elect into God. Um, so, and then Paul uses this olive tree metaphor. So all, an olive tree or uh, an olive shoot, as he talks about, um, this is a metaphor throughout the Old Testament of Israel. Mm-hmm. We saw you know fig tree, uh, olive tree, the vine, all that stuff is signifying Israel. And here he's saying that you as a Gentile grafted in to the, this tree. Mm-hmm. And so don't become proud thinking that you now have a right to boast over the Jew. You get pruned off. Yeah, God will take you off too and <laughs> prune back in the Jews, right? So be really careful to understand that you are brought into the promises. You're under the umbrella of the promises of Israel. Yeah. So these are, these are really important um, verses. So just to wrap this up a little bit, verse 25, he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Mm. So again, partial hardening, meaning there are Jews that believe in Jesus. There's a lot. But as a percentage of the population, it's very, very small. Yeah. It's, it's, and if you know any missionaries or pastors in Israel, then they'll tell you how difficult that soil is, how hard that mm. soil is. So, but the plan of God is to bring in the fullness of the Gentiles that he wants to have his elect, and then there's going to be a revival Mm -hmm. of the Jews. So look at verse 32. He says, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Mm. 
So all of this leads us to God has shown that all are subject to judgment, all deserve judgment, so that he can show mercy to all kinds of people. Yeah, amen. And then Paul ends with this just amazing praise. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, right? And then he ends with, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Some of the greatest doxology there in the, in the scripture because he's praising the amazing plan of God right. that God could do this throughout history to bring in the Gentiles, but also not to forget his people and to one day bring them in too. Hmm. Amen. Thank, thank the Lord that the Lord is sovereign, right? Amen. So, well, thanks for joining us for Daily Gospel. We'll see you next week as we uh, continue in the bro- book of Romans.